the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning. I'm I'm Roger Furlow. I'm the president of Bexley Seabury Seminary Federation, which is the federation of two of the oldest Episcopal seminaries in the United States, Um, Seabury Western in Evanston, Illinois, outside of Chicago, and Bexley Hall in Columbus, Ohio. I live in Chicago, and it's delightful to be here. (laughs) As you may imagine, uh, but it's even more delightful to be here because both Troy and Whitney um, were students of, of mine when I was at Virginia Seminary, and so it's wonderful to see them here basking in your glory. This is just great. I arrived on what turned out to be First Friday, and it was a wonderful introduction to Phoenix. Um, I came here uh, Friday night, and there was the Phoenix Chorale um, rehearsing in an open rehearsal, and got to visit the gallery, um, which is really a remarkable thing to have in a church. Um, but I also, earlier in the day, took the light rail um, just up the street a bit to um, the art museum, where there is an amazing show. They, there, are, there are seven extraordinary, well, seven, more than seven, but a small collection um, from the Casa Buonarroti in Florence of sketches of Michelangelo. Um, it is very unusual to be able to see such things, to get so close to these things. I mean, just, just, a, just an inch away, and it's as if 500 years just disappear and you actually can see the artist's hand. There was a small drawing there that I had never seen before. It's really small. It's only about maybe 12 by 15. It's a sheet of paper, just an ordinary sheet of paper, and most of the paper is blank except in the lower right-hand corner, Michelangelo has sketched out three exquisitely drawn figures in, in a state of anxiety. They're, they seem to be contorted and looking, looking at each other. Just three of them, that's it, in the small corner of this white sheet of paper. And it's extraordinary because the white sheet of paper looms so large. The blankness is what looms so large. For a long time, people didn't know what he was beginning to sketch, because clearly it's not finished. Um, And many thought, well, that looked like the angel expelling Adam and Eve, except all three of them were male, so that couldn't have been it. Um, But then they they saw that it was like from a collection of other sketches that he was beginning to sketch out an image of the transfiguration an image of what we heard this in this morning's gospel. Except that's blank, that part. All we see is the three apostles, Peter, James, and John, stricken with awe and fear. But it's as if Michelangelo couldn't or wouldn't imagine what they were seeing. Well, once I saw that, I knew I had to change the sermon. I had to talk about it, and I just did. <laughs> Because what strikes me about the blankness of that paper is that blankness in some ways can be seen as a metaphor for how many people now experience what they think about God. 
when they try to imagine how to fill what I think of as a God-shaped hole in their religious imagination. And on a Sunday like this, you're being asked in this gospel to imagine what cannot be imagined. Well, in contrast to this, Michelangelo's younger rival, Raphael, made a towering painting of the Transfiguration. In fact, it's now in the Vatican Museum. It is probably, I've seen it, it's, it's as big as that rose window. It is huge, just huge. You know, Raphael died relatively young. Michelangelo outlived him to Michelangelo's great delight, I'm sure. And the consensus now is that's the last painting that Raphael ever made. And we know from contemporary accounts that that massive painting of Christ transfigured was displayed directly above his body at his funeral. I mean, it's an amazing thing when you think about it. So I want to describe that painting to you in some detail. Now, I know this is church, but if you have an iPhone and you want to Google the image, you can actually find it. It's, it's Raphael Transfiguration. Um, but before, before I, I say something about it, I want to say something first about the episode in today's gospel as Luke presented it, because it seems that it was Luke's version of the story that attracted Raphael. And I want to think today about and I can do it in a cathedral that has a gallery, I want to think about how an artist is sometimes a better theologian than the theologians. In, in all three accounts of the episode of the Transfiguration, it's in Mark, it's in Matthew, and it's in Luke, it closely relates the vision of the transfigured Christ to the sorry story of the disciples' incompetence in trying to heal a boy possessed of demons. That's the part of the reading that um, you didn't get in the leaflet today. I didn't, it was, you had to listen to it to get it. That, that Luke puts the two accounts together. In Matthew and Mark, the two episodes are separated when he tells the story, when they tell the story, separated by an account of Jesus interpreting a bit of scripture to explain to the rather slow disciples exactly what happened, and then an account soberly predicting his own death. But when Luke tells the story of the transfiguration, he omits that part. Instead, he seems intent on directly pairing the vision of Jesus in glory on Mount Tabor with the story of the healing of the little epileptic boy, a healing that the disciples themselves are almost comically incapable of handling on their own. So this is what Raphael was attracted to. And, and so what do you make of the odd juxtaposition of two very different stories? Well, he did it in the painting, as it turns out. The painting, that vast painting, is in, is in two sections. And the top half of the section, well, it's a thing of amazing beauty. Just amazing beauty. Emerging from a shadowy white cloud in a dawn sky, Jesus floats in midair, his white robe is almost diaphanous, blowing in some sacred breeze. His arms are outstretched in glory. His bare feet are hovering just out of reach. And his face 
His face is etched in exquisite and beautiful detail. And then floating on either side of him with their sort of feet sort of dancing in the air are, 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 are images of Moses and Elijah on either side of him, staring at him. And just below them, stretched out in fear and awe on a rocky promontory, Raphael places the prostrate figures of Peter, James, and John. I mean, it's a beautiful symmetry here. It's a kind of a double triangle because there's Jesus there at the apex, and then, then Moses and Elijah form the two sides of this triangle, and then in a kind of mirror image, the three frightened disciples form a reverse triangle of their own facing it. And it's painted by a master of light and of shadow. And it's an image of deep serenity. Deep serenity. A serenity that's sort of underscored by the dynamic and stretched out figures of the three disciples, all but struck blind by the radiance, the radiance of what they witness. Now, anyone would have been satisfied to have created such a thing. But that's only half the painting. It's only half the canvas. The, that rocky promontory on which the, the three disciples are stretched out, it turns out that, as Raphael imagines it, that's the roof of a kind of cave. And the dark lower half of the painting, you get to see what happens in front of the cave. It's a tumultuous crowd scene down there. On one side, if you count up the heads, it's the nine remaining apostles. And they're staring across the way at the family members of the boy possessed by the demons. And, 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 and Raphael paints the boy's image in a harsh light that sets him off from the rest. His body is contorted, and he's got one arm pointing upward and one arm pointing downward. Next to him, in a spotlight that's equally harsh, stands a well-dressed and elaborately coiffed woman. I think it's the boy's mother. And her body is oddly twisted, too, into what seems both an angry and a sorrowful repose. She's got both her arms pointing toward the boy, but her face, so she has her back to us, her face is staring at that group of hapless disciples. It's pretty scary. I mean, she uses both of her arms to point that way as she looks that way. And then you realize everybody's putting their arms somewhere, and they're all over the place. Some are pointing up, some are pointing down, some are pointing at themselves. I mean, clearly confusion. Everyone seems to be pointing somewhere, yet all but one or two of them seem oblivious to this extraordinary vision right above their, right above their heads. The focus is on the boy. And then you realize at whom the boy's mother is staring. Over in the corner of the canvas, Raphael has depicted a solitary, seated apostle. He's old, he's bearded, and he faces the accusing mother 
with a tortured expression on his face because he's paging through a thick book on his lap. Paging through a thick book as if he was looking for the magic formula that would cure the boy. So it's very much like the passage in Luke. It's a double picture of a double episode. And Raphael actually goes Luke one better because when you read it in Luke, one passage follows the other. You read one and then you read the next one. But Luke, what Raphael presents the two episodes is that they were happening at the same time. I mean, he forces us to contemplate both episodes at once as if they were two versions of the same story, as if the young boy bathed in light but contorted in agony and blindly pointing toward the vision in the sky had something strangely in common with the transfigured Jesus, whom no one but Peter, James, and John can see except us, and who are themselves all but blinded by the light, by the glory of what they behold. So I give that to you as an image for Lent. It happens every year that this story of the Transfiguration is always read aloud in church on the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. It's that contrast between the confusion and darkness and this glory and light. That's the kind of line separating from the earthly from the heavenly that we spend so much of our Lenten discipline trying in some way to cross. Here we are with that crowd below the rocky promontory. Here we are in front of the cave dwelling in confusion and darkness pointing every which way as we try to find meaning in our lives. And we realize we have no magic formulas. We have no magic book. It's like that hapless apostle who's crouching embarrassed in the corner. We don't know how to take control. We can't fix things. We're so often helpless before that God-shaped hole in our lives, before the world's suffering, helpless before the world's suffering and our own weaknesses, our own sinfulness. I mean, Raphael understood that, I think. So it's no wonder that his friends decided to display that painting above his body. But we gather here, week after week, in these difficult times and in this beautiful place, because we are here to declare that light penetrates the darkness and the darkness can't seize it, cannot overcome it. The vision of the transfigured glory of God in Jesus is before us always if only we would turn around and look. And that's what the season of Lent is about. It's the time of turning around, the time of new conversions. So that's why the boy is pointing upwards in some uncanny way. Even in his own sufferings, he sees through the visible 
to things invisible. What we declare we do in the creed. We believe in things both seen and unseen. We stand with that boy as we view the painting at the very cusp of our own healing, glimpsing as if in a mirror our own redemption. Remarkable. And today, here in this place, we all will have a chance to glimpse things unseen by means of things seen right here at this table in the mystery of bread and wine broken and shared we will welcome the transfigured Jesus among us leaving behind the white cloud in the dawn sky he will here come among us dispelling our confusion and darkness in a moment of grace. And then also this morning, in the baptism of John Philip Benjamin Carey, we will get another glimpse of things invisible made visible here. As John Philip Benjamin emerges from the water of baptism, we get a glimpse of what it is to be made whole, to be made holy, to see in our humanity, in the humanity of that infant, the possibility of divinity, of a life redeemed by sheer grace. I'll paraphrase this morning's collect. This morning, beholding Christ's countenance in what we do today, may we all be strengthened to bear our cross, acknowledging the world's suffering and our own weakness. And in the fullness of time, may we be changed into Christ's transfigured likeness, changed from glory to glory. In Christ's name, that's what we pray. Amen.